The only thing that has been transformed is the bottom line of the big consulting firms. Hi, welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor CIO. The Digital Transformation Agency, or DTA, was established back in 2016 with an ambitious charter to steer the Australian public service towards being a world leader in the creation and delivery of digital services. A few would argue now that it's fallen well short of that, with a string of high-profile projects failing to deliver, despite going way, way over budget in some cases, a different boss for almost every year of its existence, alarming rates of churn across staff and senior management, and an increasingly secretive and unaccountable culture, as any journalist who's tried to speak to the DTA can attest. Several major changes were set in train by Chris Fetchner, who became CEO of the DTA in October last year. Unsurprisingly, he declined to join us. Um, the upshot being the DTA shifting away from actually managing large-scale digital projects to operating in more of an advisory capacity. It also has a new logo. Meanwhile, the Australian National Audit Office has commenced its audit into the DTA's procurement practices, the highly anticipated findings of which are due in September. In this episode, we're fortunate to have three of Australia's foremost experts on digital transformation in government, all of whom cite various reasons why the DTA has had its day, including arguably the biggest that you just heard at the top of the program. They also share their thoughts on how a more effective and consultative replacement might be created. All right, joining me now is Leslie Seebeck, former CIO and Head of Digital with Bureau of Meteorology, and of course, former Chief Investment and Advisory Officer with the Digital Transformation Agency, currently Professor at ANU, investigating new approaches to cybersecurity, amongst other things. Leslie, welcome to the CIO Show. Hello, David. Good to be here. And welcoming back is Murray Johnson, CEO for the Centre for Digital Business, world-renowned expert on AI and machine learning, amongst other things, having worked extensively across both the private and public sectors in Australia and overseas. Murray, welcome. Thank you for having me again, David. Right. And Rowan Dollar, of course, veteran technology leader within the Australian public sector. Um, I seem glad to have recently departed it, it would seem. Um, currently CIO with Catholic Education Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Rowan, welcome back to the CIO Show. Well, thanks, David. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be back. Wonderful. Now, Leslie, if we could start with you. You, of course, have been inside this mysterious organisation that we know as the DTA. Could you be able to share with us some of your, your experiences working there and, and, and how it works and and then we'll, we'll get into this, um, what I anticipate is going to be a, a long and detailed conversation about, you know, the, uh, the shortcomings of the DTA. And I'm sure there's some positives to reflect on there as well. Thanks, David. So look, the DTA was established with probably the best of intentions in the sense that there was a, you know, sort of um, the prime mover behind it and the shift for away from the old AGMO, Australian Government um, Information Management Office, was the sense that, you know, the Australian public service was behind the digital curve. It needed to catch up uh, and the prime mover behind it. So it came out of the then incoming government's, Liberal government's uh, e-government uh, uh, strategy uh, was Malcolm Turnbull. And Malcolm had picked up a lot of um, ideas uh, and was heavily influenced by the what was the uh, happening in the UK uh, and certainly that e-government strategy, I think I at one point counted 13 people who claimed to have authored it. So there was a broad consensus. Let's just like broadly say there's a broad consensus of people saying, yes, we need to do some more digital stuff. Yes. Government. 
Yes. The issue was, so, you know, in that with that intent, you know, right, let's go and do it. We're going to do digital stuff. And then there was magic fairy dust waved. Um, as is often happens a case with government IT, there was there's a there is a uh, impatience, let's say, amongst decision makers in the Australian government about what it takes to do these things well. There's a lack of patience. There's a lack of interest in how you set these things up. Um, and Canberra is a small captive market um, as well, so it's hard, often hard to get the talent in. So uh, the government ended up bringing in Paul Shetler, and I think Paul had a lot of very good ideas. The problem is, again, let's go back to that not setting things up well or setting them up to fail. No one had really paid attention to the remit. No one had really paid attention to how where the money was coming from, how are you going to staff this thing, and what actually it was going to do. And so we ended up sort of having a a, uh, a juggle of, you know, of a jumble of ideas and initiatives that were thrown at to go and fix somehow without thinking through the remit, et cetera. So the reality of the DTA ended up being falling way short. And so what, is, again, typically happens in Australian government IT is that things fall short, ministers get frustrated, there is a bevy of consultants who, you know, who wander around the corridors at Parliament House and promise magic fairy dust, mm-hmm. and ministers say, because I've got very short, you know, times they're trying to get things done in, Doc, right, let's just throw money at this problem, let's, you know, this, this consultant or this, you know, big tech house can solve it. There's also the idea too, and again, it reflects the lack of experience in this country around technology that well, look, we can just pull up a website just like that. So why can't the Australian government do that? Well, yes, but that's got this huge tech base and lots of experience behind it. And you're expecting the Australian government just to magic things up. It doesn't work that way. So I think there needs to be a much more mature understanding of technology. And that's even before we get into the bureaucratic politics or what actually happens to a small agency trying to enact change across the government as well. We can go into that later. Sure. What are, what are your thoughts on on that, Murray? And of course, I know both both you and, and Leslie have, you know, uh, written on on the DTA as well, and um, recently for if I'm allowed to mention a competitor, Innovation Oz, some very interesting <laughs> articles. Yeah. I'm also written for CEIO. <laughs> I know, I know, so, I know yeah, but not but not specifically on the DTA. Yeah. No, no. no. Um, look, everything Leslie says, and I would also add that. One of the things that has concerned me for a long while is that there is actually a lack of a forward vision. The uh, e-government strategy, uh, the current e-government strategy, uh, is exactly the same as the one that was published in 2013, and that one is exactly the same as published in the year 2000. So over a period of now 22 years, the strategy has not changed, and it's all about um, putting services online. In fact, the wording is almost the same. And so the DTA has been in place now for about six years. And if you take a forward view of in six years' time, what what does that look like, mm. you know? So mm. we, we can't have a strategy that in six years' time says exactly the same thing as uh, the strategy said in the year 2000. Yeah. The, the the internet has fundamentally changed. Uh, technology has fundamentally changed. The understanding of what the human experience is in these systems uh, in many sectors has changed, mm. but it hasn't that hasn't been understood 
within government? What is the human experience in complex servicing systems? Mm. Mm. And how does that translate into uh, policy policy delivery? Yeah. Also, over that 22-year period, we've seen the gutting of the public sector of its skills and contracting out. That has been an intentional strategy. And so this hasn't been something that has happened all of a sudden. Um, the DTA, in many ways, was like lipstick on a pig, um, <laughs> and it just it just didn't have either the strategy, it didn't actually have the political imprimatur um, to do what it needed to do. Anyway, so I might just uh, pause there because I'm sure <laughs> Rowan and Leslie might want to ask, have some other comments as well. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there, I mean, there's so many red flags, aren't there? I mean, there's, there's, there's virtually zero transparency, and as a journalist, I can, I can attest to that. There's, yeah. there's churn, enormous churn, right throughout the organisation at the top. I think Chris Fetchner is, is he CEO number four or five? Yeah, we confirm that. And then there's, there's also reports that at particular periods over the last six years, um, there's been as much as one hundred percent staff churn. So they're not building any depth. The only thing that has been transformed is the bottom line of the big consulting firms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, literally hundreds and billions of dollars, you could say, over that over that period. Yeah. And so what so what you have is the gutting of the public sector, which has been an intentional strategy, mm. um, dressed up with let's bring in the consultants who apparently know better. Then there's no transfer of knowledge. So you're not building up the capability within the public sector. Quite the reverse, it's a strategy to um, outsource that capability Mm. at massive costs. So I do see that one of the impediments to doing whatever needs to be done is now the vested interests of the large consulting firms who will be defending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars per year Mm. in in their market, Mm. as well as the tech companies who will come and tell you that they're doing tech for good and... uh, you know, the world will change if you buy their product. Yeah. There's been no accountability. No one's actually gone back and hold, is able to hold the Accentures or the Deloitte's or the, you know, whoever mm. to account for the failure of these things yeah. either. Yeah, yeah. And, and Leslie, you, I did laugh. You used what I thought was a wonderful euphemism in your recent piece uh, on the DTA. I think you described it, the consultancy culture as extractive. Yes. That was <laughs> well, when you start seeing sort of similar templates being circulated um, and you know it's just a retread. And again, to Murray's point, there is no forward vision. We're doing stuff here in the public sector, which should have mm. been done 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. We're not addressing some of the big problems, such and indeed the drive for efficiencies is saying, well, you know, is going increasing automation. And we mm. all know what's you know becoming increasingly clear, it's all the problems with unrestrained automation, these things are not trained on Australian databases, they're not trained by Australians, they're put into place. We have, you know, for for something which is intrinsic to our everyday life, we've lost sovereignty and all these, you know, you know, like, you know transparency and so on, there's a complete loss of sovereignty in these areas. Yeah. Every organisation, every person is a tech person, tech organisation, because we all carry supercomputers in our pockets. Yes, you know, yes. To Murray's point, things have moved on and there is still there is still that thinking that it's about efficiency and it's about blocks. It's about that box in the corner and not yeah. about flows or change or the human condition. Yes, yes. And, and as you say, best intentions. 
bringing you in, Rowan, something we've talked about, not just in the context of the DTA, but more broadly, is, is that really you, you have an entrenched, um, you know, government bureaucracy. And no matter how hard people try and, and no matter what the marketing material says about how things are going to change and how there's going to be a modern forward thinking, or agile or whatever, you know, buzzwords we might want to throw in there, you've essentially got a very old-fashioned government bureaucracy which is trying to uh, pursue a, a very complex and modern agenda. And as you've said, Rowan, it was probably never going to work. Yeah, David, I, I agree. Um, I, you know, just adding to something that Marie said was about the year 2000 strategy or the strategy that was written in the two, year 2000, <clears> the <throat> iPad wasn't invented then. Mm. <laughs> um, so, you know, much less smartphones. Mm. So, you know, anything that was written in the white in, in, in year 2000 um, is, is well and truly old enough to vote. And, you know, we, we <laughs> shouldn't be uh, relying on that as a, a strategic vision by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. My experience in government has been in the state jurisdictions and they're not interested in change. Uh, of any sort. They say they are, but they're not really when it comes down to it. They just don't get it. They're not living in the 21st century. I think they, their models and their behaviours are still back in the 19th century. They're very hierarchical and, and new ideas just get squashed. Um, they're not interested. You know, automation is not, we're not talking about AI and, and machine learning and stuff. Um, we're talking about some workflows, some simple workflows, and they're just not interested. Um, they're much more interested in taking a folder, walking over to the next table and saying, here, sign this. Um, I had an example uh, spoken uh, earlier this week um, by someone I know who said uh, in uh, one of the, the uh, territory jurisdictions, and I won't say which one it is, <laughs> that uh, they have to do a timesheet. As a staff member, they have to do a timesheet every week. Mm. They have to print that out, sign it, scan it back in, send it to their bosses a PDF who prints it out signs it, scans it, and sends it to payroll. And they're staff. They're a permanent staff member. Mm. So, I mean, we've just got so far to go. You know, the, 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 in, in government, it's, it's just, uh, I just weep, really, when I start mm. thinking about it, or I reach for a bottle of red, one of the two. Um, <laughs> and it, it just doesn't, it, they're just not interested in the change. They're not interested in making it more efficient mm. and getting better outcomes. And they don't understand that by doing the automation part and by allowing people some free time, it allows them to do the higher level tasks and think outside the square a little bit and, yeah. and it becomes a snowball effect then. You get yeah. people doing what we're really good at, which is about ethics and emotions and that kind of stuff, yeah. rather than you know stamping timesheets. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers, connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. The whole exercise has been extraordinarily expensive, hasn't it? I mean, you know, and, and Ron, yeah. something you, you mentioned recently is that the, you know, the state has been, you know, a degree of success uh, in terms of digital transformation at the state level, but really the federal level has just, yeah, not been a good story. And the COVID Safe app, I mean, hundred, hundreds of hundreds of millions on this app, really, that, that didn't yeah. go anywhere at all. And there's, again, there is, <laughs> so going back to the stewardship idea. So, mm, you know, yeah. again, there is no stewardship over this. There is no accountability over these things and no transparency. And by the way, 
that extends all the way up to the political level. I'm sick mm-hmm. of seeing the political level just sort of say, we're not accountable, but you people are. No, no. If you don't do that, you lose legitimacy, you lose trust, etc. But the other thing is to just going back to notions of efficiency. I mean, there's a, not a line that I think, or an understanding of efficiency means you do things better. It doesn't, but it loses all the things around you need for good stewardship. So, for example, um, Rowan's example of signing timesheets and so on. I was talking to um, my partner the other day, and we both worked in the day, you know, where you had files. Now, I worked in a place called Prime Minister and Cabinet, and even there, there were files. I could go and look in the file and say, oh, hold on, this was an issue. You know, this person wrote to the Prime Minister, so many, you know, et cetera. And I could go back and I could cheat and I could see the annotations on the file and so on. Mm-hmm. All that's gone. There is no memory anymore in the public service. Mm-hmm. And so what you're also seeing is that erosion of past lessons and so on, which is why they get away, you know, the consulting firms get away with the retreat. Why, you know, again, to take Murray's uh, point, you know, you'll get the 2013 strategy rebadged and people say, oh, gee, this is good. I haven't seen this before. And unless you've lived through the experience. That's right. <laughs> because it's all gone. Yeah, it's right. just, it, you know, there's this frittering across the surface and this is not good for stewardship and it's certainly not good for democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And the, po- the point on the uh, COVID Safe app, there's actually a great community, you know, in Australia, in academic, um, great cryptographers, researchers in the privacy, like good people, you know, that many of us know that were, Active in providing commentary, right? Yourself, Leslie included, that were providing commentary into the GitHub um, on the actual, you know, the documentation or coding for the COVID Safe app. um, Went and did tests on the app, all independent, wrote about it. Their feedback was not taken into account. And yet it would have been, I don't know, six or eight months before. A lot of these issues were being becoming common. Mm. They already had been communicated to the agency. So there's a real um, defensive posture that the agency has, mm. and largely that is fed by the consultants who had their hands on making this app. Yeah. So the consultants um, who were in charge of making this app didn't have the experience. They didn't have the experience of saying, what is the concept of operations in which this particular uh, piece of software is going to operate, mm. and they had no idea about that. And yet, what you have uh, in the in the broader community, in the broader ecosystem, are brilliant people, well experienced, who've been ignored. Mm. So I think that's that's one of the real cultural things that definitely mm. needs to change because we do have the capability, but it's it's needs to be accessed in a different way. Mm. And David, we've also got, um, you know, the challenges that I've seen is is I, I talk about the echo chamber of the public sector <laughs> and, you know, nobody says no. Everybody just says yes, yes, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, without any other options being on the table, without any of the options being truly investigated mm. because, you know, insert consulting company's name here yeah. has said it's a great idea, therefore it's a great idea. Um, or it worked in America or it worked in Europe or it worked in another jurisdiction, therefore it will work here. Um, the one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work either, but really it's the echo chamber. You've got, you know, secretaries and depsecs and, and chief executives and ministers 
who are not subject matter experts, um, but are surrounded by yes men and yes women. And they uh, only ever get one option presented. They then take that to the minister. There's one option. It becomes a fait accompli. It's just an echo chamber. Yeah. Just to pick up on Murray's point about, again, the COVID Safe app and the research that was into sort of looking at the um, how uh, vulnerable it was. You have to bear in mind that these are the same researchers who it could be said, you know, because they're going and testing these things, may find them up under very security legislation for actually having attacked the government. Yeah. It's a system. So yeah. they, it's not merely, you know, not people are listening. The entire legislative, you know, remit you know, basis is not conducive to this. And that, yeah. of course, is leaving us all more vulnerable, less resilient, and more open to everything from manipulation to, you know, having our systems hacked and that sort of thing. Mm. So we've got to get yes. together much more mature in this space because otherwise we're going to do ourselves in. Yeah. That's a really important point, how those same people uh, were themselves then exposed because of the legislative framework. It is is such an important point. But it's also interesting too because what it tells you about technology policy inside the federal government is that Mm. if you happen to be able to put stamp something with TS or above, et cetera, um, you know, again, coming with the security argument, that's going to, in particular with the agencies who are much better resourced than other departments, then you're going to win those arguments, which means that security is always preferenced over other concerns. What, what do you think is going to happen with the DTA? I mean, I, I, is, it, is it a fair assumption? Is it fair to assume that it's possibly just going to be sort of wound down and then kind of resurrected with under a different name and... And, and logo. I mean, so it's it's been it's been pretty pretty emasculated in the sort of recent round of changes, hasn't it? Sort of been um, shifted now into a almost exclusively an advisory capacity, whatever that means. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I wonder whether it's going to survive or do 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 any of us know really what what Labor might do if it if it wins the federal election in May with with the DTA? No, I don't have any particular insights on that. Um... Uh, when I was doing my MBA, uh, MBA years ago, I had a very, very good lecture. He lectured on um, uh, systems and technology organisations and, you know, strategic approach to technology, et cetera. And one of the points he kept coming back to, and you could tell it really felt personally because he's a really caring person. He said, eventually, you know, there are some organisations we just have to just shut it down. Mm. Mm. I actually think this is a case of DTA. Mm. There are some good people there. There's good people in organisations. But structurally, culturally, um, it is not fit for purpose. It is, uh, and again, it's going to, you know, take people down the wrong path, precisely for the point that Rowan was raised too, is that, again, there's a lack of imagination. There's a lack of unwillingness to contest and think differently in this space. And I think generally... And this is across the Australian government. We, you can see that um, contestability is not encouraged, dissent is not encouraged, alternate views are not encouraged. Creativity, God forfend any creativity unless you come with, again, you know, some sort of badge of something else such as I've done this overseas, I'm a mate or yeah. I've consulted, I'll charge you a hell of a lot of money, et cetera. And even then, they're very, very conservative solutions that come in. So, um, you know, my recommendation is you've got to scrap it and start again from first yeah. principles. Then hence, you know, what I wrote about, you know, stewardship and sense-making and, and shaping. Mm-hmm. And part of the challenge, David, is, is around uh, 
you know, the way that the public service actually works. Um, you know, if we go and form a new agency, what do we do? We don't go to market and hire 500 people. We grab 500 people from inside the public sector. Yeah. And so that thought, the thought process has never changed. We've, we've still got public servants running public, public, public service. Yeah. And any new ideas injected are, are very much piecemeal and, and are, are very much, uh, you know, there's, there's you in a department of 500 people or 5,000 people. Yeah. So you're that voice in the wilderness. Um, and uh, and that, doesn't, that doesn't work either. Um, it just keeps going on and on and on. And, and as um, I think it was Leslie spoke about earlier, that the lack of experience generally um, in the technology space in the public sector is pretty frightening. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would agree with both on that, on that point. Um, close it down. It does need to be closed down because otherwise it's a waste of tax. It's your money. It's my money. It's our kids' money, right? You're borrowing for the future to do this. So this is, does not come at no cost. So I would say close it down and then recast whatever this um, uh, entity purpose uh, should be because over this same 20 years, we've seen all these royal commissions now into veterans, we've got disability, uh, aged care, and what you see is an absolute failing, not only in the policy in those areas, but in service delivery, all of which absolutely lack any sense of what uh, digital technologies can mean in terms of the transformation mm -hmm. of the actual policy in those areas. Mm -hmm. So not just about websites and so forth. So there's a whole absence of strategic thought around digital transformation in key policy areas, mm -hmm. which I think that needs to be recast as well. And what we see in the digital government strategy on the DTA website says it all. It's a PDF document, which is text dense. Mm. You can't search it. If yeah. you have any form of disability or even inability to comprehend turgid language, you don't get it. Mm. Um, there's pictures of, you know, the minister on the front folding his arms surrounded by blokes. So it doesn't speak to the future and it's not presented in a way that anybody who is growing up into the future, like my grandsons and, you know, or everybody else's kids would even identify with. Yeah. So yeah. shut it down and, you know, re recast what it needs to be. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Euthanasia for the DTA. Sorry, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I think in uh, certainly at the state level, the state and territory level, uh, I think it's reasonably well acknowledged that New South Wales is kind of leading the charge for digitising a lot of services and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I had to go and get, uh, as part of my, my work here in Canberra, I had to go and get uh, working with vulnerable people and people's check done here and working with children's check done in New South Wales. I decided I'd take the afternoon off and go and sit in the public service uh, sunshine. <laughs> and um, I spent um, about uh, two hours um, organising the working with uh, vulnerable people's check uh, through Access, uh, Access uh, Canberra. Um, they'll get back to me in about, uh, you know, six to eight weeks when the card is ready. I'm just not even going to go there. I went to New South Wales and they uh, they said, oh, certainly, you know, this is all online. It's all digitised. Yep, we'll have it for you. No problem at all. And then gave me a piece of paper because I'm from South Australia and I'm not a New South Wales customer. And I had to fill the piece of paper in to become put in their system. 
Mm. Now, to their credit, the check came back four hours later, um, and and that was done. But you still you've still got only part of the process has been looked at. They haven't looked at the actual part that that is the sticking point. That is, you've got to fill out a form. Yeah, yeah. Can I just note, picking up on. Um Murray's point. I think it's not just whether you bring in another agency such as a DTA, G, you know, GTA, whatever it is. Um, it's again about that sort of uplift across the entire APS. For example, if you become a head of an agency in the APS, one of the first things you will get is a legislation you have to follow. And you'll probably get sort of, you know, some advice if you've got a general counsel similar in your organization about what you have to do is, you know, Public Service Act, if, you know, um, the PGPA, et cetera, as well as the particular legislation that your agency will be responsible for doing. So you need to be across all those sort of things, particularly if you're, you know, again, a designated responsible officer. Mm. You will get the budget and about what your budget are, your budget projection, you'll get the Ford estimates and so on. Invariably, you'll see, you know, the money going into your you know, IT area will be going down like that, et cetera, but you will get the budget. So you'll have a CFO, you'll sit down and talk with the CFO, almost invariably. You probably go and talk to your HR people because you might have specific skills you need to make sure, you know, do. And, of course, you need to know your own team. Tick. Done that. No one ever talks to them or holds them responsible or takes them through how the technology base is affecting their own organisation, their clients, how it interacts with their ministers, who their major suppliers are. None of that is done. Mm. Even you know, even you know, you know, security. They'll probably get around to cybersecurity, even though there's now all the provisions that you know, legislative provisions. Great lag, lag factor. Yep. Legislative provisions about doing this. Yep. So you know, my recommendation is you've got to start some of this stuff at the absolute top. They've got to be on top of this stuff. They need to be okay. Not making the calls themselves because mm. they've got people to do that, but they need to know how to ask the right questions. Yeah. And those right questions are not: is this efficient? Is this, does this, you know, meet the, you know, the requirements of the MPP? That's all important. But how is this affecting people? How can we change if we find out that something has gone drastically wrong? What remediation is there? Yeah. What does it say about, you know, accountability, stewardship and so on? Who is getting the money? Are we putting too much money into a particular tech platform, tech-based company? Who owns that company? And what does that mean about the data that, by the way, it happens to be your and my data. It doesn't belong to government. Yeah. yeah. But that's the view of government. Government here in this country owns everything. You own nothing. Yeah. Sorry, I'll get back off my soapbox. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, look, it's, 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 hard, it's hard to think of a, of a government agency in the last, you know, two decades. It's been as unaccountable as the DGA. And, um, and perhaps, Leslie, that's, you know, partly partly due to the abundance of magic fairy dust which is sort of clouding everyone's kind of perceptions it's and it's it's hard to i mean of course as we know the Australian national audit office is conducting an investigation into the procurement practices um at the dta and i'm sure you're all eagerly awaiting those findings which are coming out about september i know every journalist in the tech sector is going to be very interested in that it's hard to imagine a dta surviving beyond there ANAO coming to look at procurement policies is not necessarily going to get you good outcomes. Why? Because, you know, what Paul Shetler was trying to do is actually up in the game. This is where, you know, the old bureaucratic 
processes are pulling everything back behind. So AIO will take the currently established bureaucratic process and say, mm. did they meet? Well, no, they didn't because they're trying to enact change. This is where change, you know, change agents do get punished. That's right. So, you know, I actually think that the DTA under, you know, when Paul and Kath were building that digital marketplace, that was a good thing. Yeah. It didn't quite get to where they wanted because they were being stymied, but it was better. But, you know, there's a good chance ANAO will come all across and go, whack, no, bad DTA. You don't follow the thing that's going to take, you know, sort of five years to do something because, you know, yeah. I see. So you're saying that the, the ANAO is, is going to similarly bureaucratic mentality yeah. anyway. Yeah. I mean, again, look, you want, again, for the purpose of stewardship, I mean, the public service should be there and reliable and you know <clears throat> what the process is. <clears throat> but one size does not always fit everything. Correct. Correct. But, you know, Absolutely. when you're in a fast-changing environment, particularly when you're trying to speed, you need something faster, which is why ministers break it all the time. Yeah. Correct. Um. So you need to have that sort of, you know, two or three different changes of system. But the ANO, you know, again, they will come in, they will say, right, this is our remit, this is the currently approved Commonwealth guidelines. Oh, look, that does not meet it. Bad DTA. Mm-hmm. But they won't say, actually, out there, we've, we need to update people. Mm-hmm. They won't ask, um, is the policy fit for purpose? They simply say, did you follow the policy? If you didn't follow it, you get smacked. Yeah, there's right. A there's a difference between doing the right thing and doing the thing right. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, we tend to yeah. follow doing the thing right because other trying to figure out whether doing the right thing gets really complicated and makes you, you have to think hard and it's contested and so on. But if you follow this sort of thing, so again, that's what bureaucracy is. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of those Copernican sort of factors, you know, that, um, like that. Um, yep. you know, it, it, it it really is. It changes the thinking to say what, what are we what are we actually measuring against? And is the is one size fits all? I mean, this whole of government doctrine, which basically says one size fits all, actually doesn't work. Mm. And if that's the case, then what's what 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 are the options um, of a, a variety? I can tell you from a. Um, disability perspective it does not fit yeah. so what are you going to do say well bad luck yeah, yeah. And, and, and for bureau yeah. of meteorology yeah. and you've got specialist scientists yep. right so so there is it doesn't always fit but also you know again mm-hmm. yeah, part of the work the dta was doing was doing life journeys now apart from the fact that this is about 10 or 15 years out of days second yeah. i objected to the idea that to be blunt White middle-class people living in the very part <laughs> of life sitting in Canberra are That's going right. the life journey for, you know, for the Australian citizen. I'm going, oh, my God, seriously? Now, yeah, look, they were very well-meaning people. They yeah. were really yeah. deeply invested. They were lovely, but they were wrong. Mm. And they were mm. wrong because the entire concept was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But if we were to, if you'd imagine the three of you being appointed uh, to a panel to build to build the successor to the DTA or to build an, an agency that you know that, that to achieve what the DTA failed to do. How would we do it? Where would we start? I know that's probably saying let's talk for another five hours, but we'll sort of maybe just get key points. <laughs> Even oh. key points will take all afternoon. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I think, uh, you know, you, you've really got to um, throw the, the, the current template out and, and start again. You know, what are we actually trying to achieve? What does digital mean for government in Australia, whether that be at the federal or the state level? And what have we got to do to then change how we currently view technology, which is, in most departments, is a cost centre. You know, the budget gets cut and you're on that slippery road to, to trying to do more with less. And, and that's a real problem for everybody. I think we need to sit back and start to work it out on, a, on the back of a beer coaster and go from there. I mean, really high level and then start to work out what some of the details look like and bring people in from outside government and outside the consulting game as yeah. well and, and actually get out and talk to users. I mean, that's one yeah. of the things that differentiates me, I think, from many other executives around. I actually go and talk to my users. Um, I want to find out what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I think that's what uh, many chief executives and secretaries across the, the, the public sector could, could learn from is actually get out and talk to people who are using your services and find out how to make them better. Yeah, <laughs> it would be a great challenge, I have to say. Yeah. Um, what would result from it may not be particularly, people may not like what comes from it, put it that way. One of the things I see that is really changing the game beyond individual agencies is the rise of algorithms and the additive impact of algorithms, particularly on the most vulnerable. Mm. So we, we've seen it with RoboDebt and, you know, that was absolutely, I mean, declared unlawful by the federal court of, of the government's actions on its own citizens. Yep. Now, I don't think the Australian Public Service has actually sat down and contemplated what happened and what that decision actually means for governance yep. and service delivery. Yes. But it's happening in, it's happening, it's still happening, and it's happening in the NDIA yeah. with algorithms being used for decision-making for people with disability for their plans. It's going to be happening with veterans. So that's just in the Commonwealth level. Yeah. It'll, happen, it'll happen everywhere. Yeah. So if you really think about what it means for the individual, they will be subject to the ungoverned use of algorithms and the additive impact of that will be horrendous. And so that really then takes it outside the in individual governance of particular secretaries and so forth, because there is a there is a broader issue here to be to be dealt with, mm. and the DTA is absolutely missing in action. And on this point, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is also missing in action. Mm. We currently have a discussion paper on the use of AI and algorithms, and all that discussion paper points at is the glorious things that AI can do. So this is a real Copernican moment, if you like. So for 20 years, the sun has been going around the earth, so to speak. Um, we've all thought that uh, these 22-year-old digital strategies were the best thing. Yeah. So it really is a Copernican moment at the, where, we, where we are. And uh, we need to be, as a public sector, as a community, as a society, looking at that front on. And we need to be inclusive of all people people in remote areas, Indigenous communities, all those people have been utterly left behind mm. in every digital strategy over the last 22 years. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, look, I, I think, I think that's, that's, that's profound and that's important, isn't it, that, that, that focus on the end user, the customers. And, and Leslie, that's, that's something that you've, yeah. um, that sort of speaks to your points, particularly with the, the, the two of your three S's of stewardship and in a sense, making and shaping, that's really what that's about, right? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, just in response to your question around what I would do. So one of my lessons for working in full budgets and Department of Finance is never underestimate the power of the financial framework to, you know, sort of shape outcomes and particularly sort of bad, you know, sort of yeah. things that does that constraint. Um, you know, and over the last 20-odd years, we've been seeing, you know, the capabilities hacked away, et cetera, money being put into specific policy proposals. So it's very much tied to initiatives as opposed to building that base up that, you know, we need, we know is needed in departments and so on. Mm. So I'd really, you know, be attacking that. I'd be looking at um, uh, that, again, the broader culture, a part of it, culture and capability to do that. It would be based out of Canberra. You know, there is a tendency, the gravitational weight to pull everything to Canberra and it becomes part of the giant echo chamber and basically zero-sum games that go get played in this town, frankly, yeah. around this sort of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, Canberra is not where you go if you want to know where the best, savviest people are in technology. You know, you go, they're not going to, you know, some of them will happily live in Canberra, but now if, you know, everyone's getting working from home and so on, that's, you know, the options are based, you know, much more open to that, but you don't base it in Canberra. That said, you need to have some Canberra footprint simply because of the nature of the, you know, nature of this place. Yeah. But I also believe too that there's more generally, we need to break apart Parliament House, get the ministers out of there. Every other capital, if you were to visit ministers in any other capital, you would go and visit. You go and visit. You want to see the Secretary of Defence in the US? You go to the Pentagon. You want to go and see the Minister for Employment in um, in Copenhagen? You go to the, his department. Every other country, you go to their departments. They're located there. Yes, they'll come in and sit. You know, their parliaments house or the Reichstag or wherever mm -hmm. during sitting, but they don't live up there, and they don't certainly live cheek by jowl with you know with the the media in that regard. So break that apart. Get break, you know, start building sort of building out from Canberra. And certainly technology is one of the ways you're doing it. You have to do it. We're already seeing government departments saying we have to open up things out, out you know, elsewhere because we can't do it all here. So I'd be putting it out of Canberra. I'd be looking at the remit and governance and picking up some of Mari's points too. There's got to be a balance inside inside government that has a voice that is other than simply the two big behemoths of policy, which is security. And, you know, again, um, it, you know, the economy in terms of, you know, again, what is a good thing for social well-being in this country? Mm -hmm. There's a tendency to put all the risk on the least able to account, you know, to, to fight for us, mm -hmm. whether they're disabled or the Indigenous communities, et cetera, particularly when it comes to intransparent things such as um, security and data. So I'd be setting up something that had that stewardship function. It'd be independent, largely independent, and it would actually, I'd be taking all the budgets out of government departments for technology. And I'd be sort of saying, right, you know, you can either do it. There's a couple of different ways you could do it. You know, either they sign off on it or they actually implement it. I'm not necessarily in favour of a body, you know, because I know that some, some of the you know, political players or bureaucratic players in Canberra have got this in mind. You know, providing to technology other than commodity because having one run a shop that is highly specialised, most other people have got no idea how to do it. Yeah. So, you know, you need to, so you need to understand where you build those deep tech wells because it is a public service. It is for the benefit of the nation. It is mm. not something that gets in the way of ministers. It's yeah. there for a reason. It falls. It's all that things that you know falls into Michael Lewis's fifth risk. The mm. stuff that we need to make this you know society and economy. Function well. Yeah, yeah. Well, my thing I would add there, um, David, is absolutely following on from what Leslie just said, is every other 
secretary and deputy secretary and chief executive and deputy chief executive needs to have those technology KPIs written into their employment contracts. Otherwise, they just don't care. You know, you've got the big agencies out there who just don't care. They just go and do whatever they want. And, and you end up being another DTA because you've got, a, you've got a mandate but no budget or you've got a budget and no mandate and you've got no um, uh, power to, to implement anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, very, very uh, interesting insights. I, I'm thoroughly confident that the three of you could build an outstanding successor to, to the DTA. Thanks, thanks all very much for joining us on, on the CIO show. And we look forward to having you all back on again soon. Thanks, David. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone. Go on, you, you too, Murray. Okay. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Coming up next, we're welcoming Nine's Chief Information and Technology Officer, Damien Cronin. Back to the CIO show to reflect on his and his team's experiences dealing with that high profile ransom attack that happened just over a year ago. What did they learn and what advice would they give to other CIOs and tech teams facing similar challenges? We'll also be discussing how Nine's ambitious digital transformation journey is tracking as it seeks to adapt and thrive in the fast evolving media sector. We hope you can join us.